because I have to hold it like kind of so up So when here. you're not talking, yeah, don't. Yeah, yeah, I'll move on. I'm talking, but I'll try. It's like an Xbox. Where you cut is kind of central. <laughs> yeah, what are you crunching on? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's. If we were high, that'd just be an Yeah, what are, you, what are you crunching on over there? Mm. Uh, all right, so welcome, ladies and gentlemen. We have a special, we have a very special episode today. We've got family, we've got friends, we've got all kinds coming with us today. Um, we're bringing a new topic for you, um, <coughs> a little something I like to call capitalism in sports and entertainment. Um, as we all know, um, well, maybe I should just introduce everybody first. So we'll go, we'll go counterclockwise here. Um, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself here? Um, yeah, I go by the uh, name of Chubbs. Chubbs, welcome, Chubbs. Um, How are we related? We are um, acquaintances um, mm -hmm. from long ago. I see. Is, that, is uh, that right? Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Good. Makes one of us. All right, we'll go to the next one. Hi, uh, I am Don Quixote, welcome also known Don. as Don for short. Don, welcome. Um, How are we related? We are not related. We know That's each other, true. I think, when you were bagging groceries at Kroger's <laughs> once upon a time. I oh think boy. you bagged my ice cream. And here Quite we Quite a long time 15 ago. 15 years later. I already bagged are. more than that. Honestly, how long ago was that? Uh, I was I 15, I'll, right? I'll, I'll, I can find out. I'll find That's out. That's fucking twelve years ago. Yeah. Oh my god! Long time. I'm gonna make the episode picture that, that picture, picture you took of me. Yeah, yeah, just so everybody can kind of get a taste of I'll what I was out. working with back then. Very cool. Thanks, Don. Um, and then, last but not least, yes. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's been quite annoying. I mean, I know you've sent me numerous emails, phone calls. You want me to be on this show. You've asked for me to be on this show. So it is a honor and a pleasure to finally have time. I actually um, had to have you come in and, you know, be in my home today just so we can make uh -huh. this happen. I really appreciate you coming and making this happen. My name is Slick, just Slick. Like awesome. Seal, like, you know. Like Kiss from like a Rose Tiger. Seal? No, like the singer. Yeah, that's Kiss from a Rose. Yeah, you're right. Okay. Yeah, sorry. I never listened to his stuff. I just knew he had one name. Okay. Like McLovin. Idiot. Yeah. So just slick. And um, I'm really excited. I think we met at a pro-Trump rally <laughs> <laughs> uh, in 2016. Oh, no. It was, so a, it was a Patriot Prayer rally. Well, I guess it's kind of the same yeah, thing. Yeah, Patriot Prayer. Like we were getting our – we were actually – we met in the backpack aisle when we were packing our doomsday Oh yeah, I was, I was buying my bug out bag yeah, yeah, and exactly. my uh, Patriot protein, and I think I think what what were you doing? You were buying like the biggest gun I've ever seen, and uh, uh, yeah, grenade launcher. Yeah, oh yeah, it was a grenade launcher, mm -hmm. which is legal in South Carolina, which is awesome. Yes, so. we can shoot off grenade launchers and fireworks at any time of the year. Yeah, at liberals. Which yeah, is and as long as you're on my front yard, <laughs> it's not illegal. That, or so that's what they told me at the. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, that is understandable because the government might come try to take it from you. So you need something we need protection. to protect yourself. Listen, yeah. I have 50,000 rounds of ammunition <laughs> in my garage. <laughs> so I wish as you were the joking. famous Brody Van Wagen has said, come and get us. <laughs> <laughs> come find us. This is all false. So CIA, whoever, you know, if you're listening, we're just uh, allegedly. Yeah, we're, 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 we're just joking. We're kind of stereotyping, but we're having a really good time. Anytime. At it. Oh, yeah. I'll just mention this to all of you. Anytime you say something and you're a little nervous about it, just say allegedly after yeah. and it doesn't count. All right. Thank you. Okay, excellent. 
So that's everybody. Or here. just JK? Just JK? J- no, JK doesn't count. It's like even if you're joking, that can be held against you in a court of law. Interesting. Yeah. Or bless your heart. I'm a cop, so I would know. Oof. Um, so I think um, so. Slick or sorry, Chubbs is my cousin. We got Don Quixote, uh, unfortunate longtime friend, and um, Slick, um, another cousin. So Slick. welcome everybody. Slick sucks. Um, I, so I want to say outright, <coughs> I'm clearing my throat today because um, the devil's in me. Um, outright, I just want to say that not everybody here shares my politics. Not everybody here is quite on the same level as me politically, you know, socially, economically. Our views are quite different. I'm pretty sure by everybody you mean just not everybody, but actually everybody here doesn't share. No, nobody here, in fact, right, shares yeah. my... Or anybody, for that matter. Nobody in general. But that's why this country <laughs> is so great, because it's a melting pot, <laughs> and we get diversification of opinions. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, vote, vote for me. South Carolina. Um, so, yeah, nobody really approaches my level of uh, of anti-capitalism here. Um, I have dragged a couple of you from the depths of uh, Fox News. Um, you know, I, I hate to say it, but I think we've all made great strides since 2016. I think all of us are, you know, looking toward the horizon and we're understanding that um, nothing really matters. We're all going to die regardless. And we might as well love each other, I think. Um, Yeah, maybe. Hopefully sooner rather than later. I would hope that maybe soon, maybe quicker would be better than kind of a long long drag. I would hate that. But it would probably be that way, in fact. Yeah, that'd be super cool. So so today's topic, uh, as I said before, is uh, capitalism. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oh, what a surprise. Uh, Capitalism, but in sports and entertainment. And I think this is important because even though, you know, we're talking about any time we're talking about, I should say, you know, political economy, political philosophy, even something like sports, are not exempt from this discussion. You know, capitalism is an economic system predicated on ownership of resources and dictatorship of the production process by a small minority of ruling elite. Uh, maybe you're finding this out for the first time, um, but I think it's I think it's important to talk about these things, even in things that don't seemingly have anything to do with politics or the economy. Because you know, ownership is kind of central to how we should be interpreting any sort of social relation or institution, and that includes sports. And that includes other things we don't typically associate politics, like social media, you know, the clothes that we wear, how we present, TV, movies. I mean, the sad truth is that everything is political, whether we're actively conscious of it or not. So. So keep this in mind throughout our conversation here, the four of us, um, who owns versus who labors. And, and the reason this is important because of something called, we're going to just very briefly talk about the bullshit real quick, something called the labor theory of value, which we've talked about in episode two. Uh, this is an economic theory proposed by some of these classical liberal economists, Adam Smith, David Ricardo, these were early proponents of the capitalist economic system and accepted but kind of tweaked a little bit by, again, my non-biological fathers, Karl Marx, Friedrich Engels, we, who we all know very well by now. Um, so the labor theory of value, what is that? Um, sounds like bullshit. Well, it basically states that value creation does not come from ownership of capital. It comes from labor. And the economic value of any good or service or commodity produced 
you know, not necessarily its price, like value and price are two different things, not the price on the market, but the value in exchange when traded for other commodities. That is determined by the amount of socially necessary labor required to produce it. That's where value comes from, not from ownership itself. So for example here, if I'm creating a basketball from scratch, the value of the basketball doesn't come from the person or entity that owns the raw materials and tools that go into making it. The raw materials already existed, and the tools that go into making the basketball were also previously made by labor. So the value of the basketball is created by the labor that actually goes into making it, right? So all of that is a primer for what we're going to talk about today. Um, these three these three dipshits, I greatly respect their opinion when it comes to kind of knowledge of how things work within the sports milieu. So with that whole preface in mind, I want to bring you guys back into the conversation. I centered myself a little bit um, for good reasons because I'm very eloquent, I'm smart. But I want to bring the three of you back into the fold, and I want to ask you a simple question. Uh, it's been bugging me for, for quite some time here. Um, with regards to the overall functionality and the day-to-day -day operations of any team in any sport, and keeping in mind that labor theory of value we just talked about, or I just talked about, what do team owners do? What is their function? Feel free to speak up. Feel free to be silent. Feel free to speak up. Whatever you guys um, want. Yeah, Chubb's on the mic. Um, Welcome, Chubb's. So I, I think in short, um, it, it seems to um, vary depending uh, on the owner. Um, so some owners do tend to be a little bit more involved than others. Uh, others kind of just sit back and seem to, I guess, enjoy the... Um, I guess the the production that their that their teams are able to put out, um, but I, I I mean some owners have big influences. I think we we've all had conversations on how bad of an owner that Michael Jordan has been with the Hornets. Very true, piece um, of shit. Absolutely fucking hate Michael Jordan. You know, lemonide, you know, lemonize. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, you hate to see liver failure. So you know, <laughs> so and you know, out in the open, and uh, it's sad. You know, we want to help him. We want to help you, Michael Jordan. But especially to one of the greats, you're, you're dying in front of us, and we want to get you a new liver. But in any case, you know, it's it might be too late. But it might be too late for lemon. Um, you know, it, it it's really funny as someone that, uh, who had such much so much success. I think as a player, and you know, arguably uh, the greatest of all time, turned the goat, um, and for rightful reasons, but has done a um, a shit job <laughs> at being an owner. Um, he's known to have um, a huge influence on who they've drafted, free agents that they've gotten, and I think he's hit the mark on one player and that player he wasn't even willing to cough up the money to keep the season that was Kemba Walker um, which I know as a native of Charlotte everyone is pretty upset about that um, for rightful reasons Kemba kind of brought them out of the grave um, and made them relevant again and he's gone um, where did he go Boston Boston yeah one of the fuckers yeah exactly anyways I agree. I think um, Michael Jordan is a is a piece of shit asshole, and uh, I I guess I wouldn't mind if his liver did eventually fail, um, and we had to bury him. I I don't think that'd be that bad, um, because I I mean as a Knicks fan, I mean peripheral. I don't want to say I'm a Knicks. I am a Knicks fan, but kind of 
in the periphery of the NBA. I don't follow a lot of sports anymore. Um, but the untold damage that you know that Michael Jordan has done to the Knicks, um, I don't. Th- I think it's irreparable damage. I don't think I'll ever be able to come back from it. And a lot of it was sort of before my time, but um, we don't forget those kinds of things. Um, so Michael Jordan. Di- overall, Michael Jordan dying. Good um, team owners uh, were un- still unsure. So um, I don't know. Maybe we have another yeah opinion. So I think uh, Chubbs kind of nailed it when he said that there's quite a wide spectrum of involvement by most owners. Um, So when you kind of look at the list of current NBA majority owners, you have people like Mark Cuban, Steve Ballmer, um, who are quite involved in the day-to-day running of the team. I don't know necessarily how much as far as actual player movement decisions, but um, it's known that they're always around. They're always trying to help the players in any way that... Um, they can, and sometimes those are uh, marketing tactics for players to sign in free agency. Um, then you have people like Peter Holt, who is the owner of the Spurs, who it's quite you know known throughout the NBA that he doesn't do too much. It's mainly R.C. Buford, their general manager, uh, Popovich, their coach, that make most of the day-to-day decisions about personnel and, and team. Um, then you have people all the way down, Um, to kind of like Clayton Bennett, who is the owner of the Thunder. Uh, He is the man who has an entire section of the country who hates him because he moved the team out of Seattle uh, for financial reasons. Hate to see that. You hate to see it. Uh, Several states don't like that man. But the point is, you know, most people, myself included, I had to look him up. He doesn't do that much, and you don't hear much about him except for how much he's hated. So the point is there's a spectrum from people like Mark Cuban shows up in the locker room, gets them whatever they want to try to make them happy to stay and or sign with the team, all the way down to someone who actively removes a franchise, disrupts the local economy, and is just generally hated by thousands and thousands of people. Um, So there is a spectrum, um, and we can kind of uh, see what uh, you guys have to say as well. I mean, it's got to be a good feeling to have tens of thousands of people just just hate your guts. Um, Yeah, and and truly hate. Not like, oh, you know, I'm a star in another arena, you know, 15,000 screaming fans hate me for 48 minutes. No, no, it's like these people really, really hate this guy. And I think uh, well-deserved, to be honest with you. Um, Slick, you've been quiet. I haven't been quiet. I've just been patiently waiting for a track to explode on. So... um, (laughs) (laughs) Here we go. So, but is that yeah. Drake? Who the hell is that? 50. 50. M&M. AKA Ferrari F50. Um, out of the loop. Got a lot of living. Do a lot of time. Okay. Anyway, so, yeah. So, just to piggyback basically off of what uh, Don Quixote, great story, by the way. Um, but, yeah. So, he kind of touched base on, like, what they really do. Most of my experience of, like, my perception of the owners, they're probably already CEOs in other businesses. And now they yes. become filthy rich based off your scheme as you call the capitalism approach um they have gained enough i would say it's more than an approach at this point it's more like um infiltrating every single aspect of our lives it's an epidemic yeah so basically what they've done um you know they're now taking this on some of them take it on as a hobby they want to see perhaps if they can you know lead a team to a championship some just are going for the net profit aka the fred coupons of the new york mets but um, so I don't think they work every day with these teams. Um, you might have the ones that like mentioned, like Mark Cuban. Yeah, sorry, Don Quixote you mentioned, Mark Cuban, and um, you know you got the Jerry Buses of the world. You got the Robert Crafts, etc. 
But a lot of them, you know, I think what they just see is oversee the GM. They manage the money side. They work with the team's accountants. You know, most of the ro- roster moves and staff decisions are made by the GM. Basically, what the owners do is just deal with, like, ticket pricing and how they want to, like, do the perceptions. Now, you have some of them, such as, like, Mark Cuban. Another one that I would like to mention, and I think we talked about it the other day, is Jerry Jones. Jerry I mean, Jones. Jerry Jones. Jerry Jones. What the hell are you doing? That's, like, literally my favorite tweet of all time. You guys know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Indeed. you never seen that tweet? I just know Jerry Jones. You know, Jerry, I think it's Reggie. Was it Reggie Evans? Eight zero zero four. That's uh, that's Mike, not Jerry. That's Mike, but they oh. look similar. I'm pretty sure it's Reggie Evans. This was like probably five years ago now. Reggie Evans. I don't remember who it was. It was like after a Cowboys about. game, and it was like all caps. Jerry Jones. Period. What the hell are you doing? <laughs> yeah. All caps. Yeah. Jerry's very like. Oh, Jerry. Yeah. I'm gonna pick everything, and I'm gonna just make sure I control it from the ground up, and. As you'll see, they have not won a championship since 1996. So, I Ouch. mean, it's, there's a lot of different approaches. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they, I do think that they oversee some items, but it's I, I definitely don't think it takes up much of their time with the ones that aren't as into it as the others. I mean, it really just comes down to which owner you're, sp- you're speaking about. But the unfortunate part is they all make money no matter how much they care. And a lot of it. Yeah, yeah it, it seems like a lot of owners are kind of – um, you know, their role is more so kind of getting into a, a beautiful suit. Um, maybe they're maybe they're eating at buffets. Um, they're they're making phone calls. Maybe they're even answering phone calls. I don't know if they even dial the number. Maybe they have somebody else do it. Uh, they're talking on speakerphone a lot. Um, they're they're doing a lot of hand gestures uh, while angrily speaking on the phone. Uh, that's kind of my perception of what owners do um, in terms of like functionality to the the day to day of the team. I, I'm not really sure exactly what they you know what their purpose is beyond kind of what you said. It's like just this kind of personal profit generation. And if you know if you'll allow me to go on a you know get on my soapbox here for a second. To me, um, I'm going to draw a comparison here. To me, franchise owners are are the landlords of sports. And I'll kind of explain why I'm, I, I like this comparison. So let's just say, imagine here, let's, let's, all, let's all go to our mind palace here together, our collective mind palace. Let's say that, you know, I just bought an apartment building. Um, you know, it's, it's a beautiful building, um, brutalist architecture. It's fucking sick. Everybody loves it. They say, I wish I owned it. There's a fleet of Peloton machines on the first floor, this, this pristine Olympic-sized pool, daily, you know, cleared of, of urine and feces produced by the young children. Um, it, it's the most beautiful building on the planet. My plan with this building that I bought, um, I want to rent this apartment out to several families. Um, and the reason I want to do this is because, you know, under capitalism, and I put that quote-unquote, under capitalism, under the capitalist mode of production, if I own this apartment building and I know people need a place to live... I will make money by allowing them to live there. Kind of obvious, but that's the way it works. The problem with this arrangement is that given my position of ownership of capital, you know, in the form of the land and the building itself, and given these tenants' positions of lacking a need in the form of shelter, there's this built-in kind of power imbalance in my favor as the landlord. Now, we're not living under feudalism, so... I can't make them serfs and you know directly appropriate their labor in exchange for allowing them to ha- inhabit the building. 
And, and anyways, I mean, there's no labor to be performed, right? In our society in 2019, a home is a place for this essential social reproduction, not value creation through labor. Um, so, so what do I do? I accept payment in the form of money, some amount of, of cash, because money is the universal equivalent of exchange, right? It's the equivalent value of, of any, you know, a certain amount of labor that you work, the equivalent amount of some kind of commodity that you sell, you know, and I can use that money for whatever I want in the future. So, so when they pay me, I allow them to occupy this building that I kind of just happen to own. And, and the question becomes, why? You know, why do I own this building? Um, if we're talking most likely, it's probably because I happen to have access to generational wealth, kind of sp statistically speaking. In other words, I own this land and building because I was rich enough to buy it, and that's pretty much it. And, and even if I didn't have access to generational wealth, and I worked my way up from the bottom, kind of this bootstraps thing, it doesn't really change the fact that, you know, I didn't build the land, I didn't build the building, I didn't put the labor into turning this idea or abstraction of an apartment building into an actual apartment building. You know, I took no part in this reification. And, you know, although I own this building and generate income from it, I don't really do any labor on a day-to-day -day basis to maintain it. And if I do very little to maintain it on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm not creating any value in this interaction between me and my tenants, or at the very least not nearly the amount of value that's reflected in what I would be charging them for rent. So with that knowledge, somebody just fart? I knew it. You you just threw the whole shit off. Don Quixote. I was crushing. It was a stomach rumble. Stomach rumble, my ass. Anyways. I haven't eaten. What I want to ask you guys now is another question. And the question is this. What do landlords do in your perception? I mean, I think everybody's had a la everybody in this room has had a landlord at some point. I know I have. So what does a landlord do? Um, so my current landlord, I... If I had to make a list of the seven plus billion people on this planet, that in order of how much I like them, mm -hmm. she would be maybe tenth from the bottom. Bottom ten. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I pay a decent amount for my place. Um, it's not cheap. What is that? A flex or something? No. No. Okay. I'll, I'll let yeah, me we'll let get to my point. <laughs> what are you trying to say? And the point is that you know I moved in and half of the stuff I actually had to kind of repair or patch up myself which is kind of ridiculous right when is that a flex that much no because i'm god awful at it i was watching yeah, you're like i was that's what you like to hear. i was after patch work <laughs> watching youtube videos about like plumbing 101 and just trying because nice. within like a month of living there my my kitchen sink messed up my bathroom sink messed up my bathroom toilet messed up i had to seal a lot of the cracks around like the baseboards uh, my garage door got stuck. I had to fix that. Yeah, step on a crack, you know, break your mom's yeah, back. And I don't so no, want nobody wants that. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I had to save that. I mean, mm -hmm. my poor mother, God's sake. Good for you. Um, and that's just maybe half the things off the top of my head that I've had to repair. And uh, and I, I tried to have her initially kind of help me with some of these things. And like a week or two weeks, my air conditioner broke. Um, and if you know where I live, it's quite hot. It was in the summer. Uh, heat index is like 115. You're around the Gulf of Mexico. We'll yeah, say that. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, yeah, I'm what's a stone's your, like, throw. What's your physical address? 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Numbers, cities, yeah, locations, it's, it's, zips. Uh, it's uh, whoosh, 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 sorry, uh, sorry, we lost you there. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so so it, it took like five, six days of me living in like 95 degree apartment or so um, for her to finally send someone out to fix it. So I don't know why I pay her. I really don't. Like she makes mm-hmm. a significant amount of money off of me and, and doesn't contribute anything, really anything. Um, it's, it's like me making the phone calls to the repairmen. So I, I don't know what the point of her receiving so much income from my view is because it's just like I'm paying her to live here, but yet I still do all the work, which kind of goes against what you would think when you rent a place. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you would like to think they help with, especially things like, you know, AC that breaks in the middle of a hot summer. Um, so it's pretty frustrating. I, I don't like her much. I'll probably move out soon. Um, but yeah, that's my kind of two cents. You know, I will say this quickly. I, I do love um, the progressivism going on that your landlord is a woman. You know, we love to see women in positions of power like that because I think that's the only way forward um, through through liberalism is to is to make women exploiters too. And I, and I love to see that. So, uh, thanks for sharing, um, Don. I think uh, I think I think Slick or Slick. Slick had something to say. I believe. Yeah, I'll take precedent here. Um, so. For me, basically, your question originally was, what is a landlord? What do they do? My experience with landlords, good and bad, and I've had a few before I bought my home, was that basically they check in from time to time. Hey, how are you? You know, fuck you, pay me, and then I'll, <laughs> yeah. ta- I'll talk to you later. Mm-hmm. And yes, if you come into those circumstances that poor Don has went through as far as like, you know, hot heat index and you know, having to need something of an emergency, that's what separates you. Kind of like a team owner. Um, you know, hey, we need better players. So can, what can you do for us? Can we expand the budget a little bit to make this championship run? Or, you know what, try to find, you know, two cents on the dollar and plug them in and still charge the fans, you know, $200 per ticket to see this guy that, you know, maybe should be playing in double A or something. So for me, it's like these owners are coming in and, you know, the ones that are good, they will get right to you and fix your air conditioning. And the ones that aren't, they collect your money and you'll see them maybe in two or three weeks and go from there. So I just break it down that way. Um, Chubbs? Yeah. Um, you know, similar to my, my friend Don here, um, I don't really pay that much for my place. You know, I'm like Don. Um, not as. Is that a flex? Less of a flex. <laughs> not as, I mean, not oh, as nice like of a place. He's thrifty. Yeah, uh, yeah, good yeah, for like you. Um, like a hipster. Excellent. Yeah, I would yeah, be what you define maybe as a um, you know typical poor college kid eating off bologna and cheese, ramen noodles, sometimes you. mixed together. Spam? Just whatever you can. Yeah, mixed spam. together. Oh. Spam. Oh. Spam. Don't. Don't sleep on spam. Yeah, don't sleep on it. Okay. You know, uh, at least at least we're hitting on that note. Yeah. You know, they um, on James Corden uh, talk show, the uh, spill your guts or eat your whatever. They had spam on there as like a punishment to eat. Like if you don't like reveal, like it's fucking bullshit. Spam yeah. is awesome. That is like the s- one of the staples of an American or Arabic. I uh, yeah, uh, I grew uh, up dish. on spam. Yeah, it's not that bad. Like you know, yeah, it's meat from a can, but like I think as a famous philosopher once said, it it keeps you humble. Keeps you humble, yes. absolutely. Put spam, a yes. little bit of pita bread, throw in some tomato slices. Mm. I, you're in for yes. a treat. I mean, don't bread, sleep on maybe spam a little egg, a little, little egg. egg, little egg, Ooh. little egg. Okay, now you're getting frisky. <laughs> Back to my story, yeah. So um, I ended up living in this place for three years, so three leases. Um, probably a terrible fucking decision in retrospect. Um, first first year in the lease, not too bad. I liked my roommates. We were getting along, no troubles. Um, and it seemed almost immediately after signing my second year on the lease, 
my dishwasher goes out and similar to my friend Don, my AC goes out in the middle of May and June. And, um, I live in the South, um, Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, heat index, maybe not quite 115, um, like my friend in the Gulf, but, um, it was pretty hot. Um, I think my thermostat hit around 80 something, um, constantly complaining that my AC was out to, um, the office manager, um, and constantly was just trying to put Freon into an AC unit that was clearly out. Um, actually sent a technician that wasn't even licensed, so probably oh, found awesome. the cheapest fix um, to That's try really to, cool. f- you know, quote unquote, fix my AC, was ended up just slapping a Band-Aid on a bigger problem. Freon kept leaking out. He actually ended up messing up the entire interior part of the AC, um, ended up having to replace <laughs> the whole unit. Um, and oh, it wasn't, okay. you know, and, and the remarkable part. So it was a guy part, who basically went and bought Freon from Home Depot, and he's like, well, let me, let me yeah, poke Yeah, he's just like, this should, this should work, and it worked. <laughs> I would come home, long day from work, and I'm like, okay, you know, I can finally enjoy some AC, yeah. and I'm waking up the swamp ass at 3 a.m. <laughs> I'm literally buried Oof. in my sweat on my bed. God damn. Praying to God, someone please kill me. <laughs> um, you know, unfortunately, I'm still here, but... Yeah, I was able to live through the pain and the suffering. Um, and it really wasn't, you know, and I, I had to kind of flex my privilege even to get sure. my Ooh, well to get my AC fixed. I am fortunate enough that my sister-in-law is a lawyer, and there I had to go. get her to call and threaten with her. Um, legal jargon. Yeah, her legal jargon. Um, I mean, you could have just called me. I just threatened to fuck him up. I mean, right. I'm, I'm pretty strong at the <laughs> right, end of the day. Yeah. I understand you <laughs> go the legal route, but don't forget that, that physicality is also an option. So right. if you need me um, next time. Yeah, my biceps probably quite are as big as yours. Um, yeah. Calves are in question, but... Um, oh, there is no question, actually. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say there's a question. Yeah, there. but it, it was it was pretty Not sad, honestly. I, I signed the lease. It took a long time. It wasn't until I threatened to actually sue and make it a big deal that actually... Maybe the owner was like, oh, shit, maybe I should actually not be a fuckhead and actually try to take care of my resident who's paying on time monthly for a place that he needs to live. Yeah, it seemed like you were a good boy, and they just didn't really yeah, care. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't give a shit. I'd say I was a pretty good resident, never yeah. caused any trouble, you know, maybe smoke some weed here and there. Yeah, no big deal. Nothing wrong with that. Right. A little um, bit of weed, a little bit of... Allegedly, of course. Allegedly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, um, not not actually, allegedly. Allegedly, right. JK. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, and it, it's just kind of sad that, you know, and at the end of the green, grand scheme of things, I was still having to pay rent that year or that month. I didn't get any type of discount. Um, I'm sure they suffered. took your uh, security deposit as well. I wouldn't be surprised. Oh, yeah. I got I got fucked on the uh, on the back end. I didn't get my security deposit back. They actually ended up charging me $15 per bag of trash that I didn't leave. Um, <laughs> technically, I was actually just got a call from collections trying to say that I... Uh, that I actually have still money to owe. Outstanding balance. Yeah. And I you're probably jail, bitch. went the fuck off on the guy that called <laughs> me. So sorry if you're listening. Um, well, oh, he's definitely, yeah, he's definitely listening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, landlord exploits college students listens to yeah. socialist podcast. Is um, that a Pornhub title? <laughs> That's got, I feel like I've seen that. It's got some hits. What you um, just said. What did I just say? I don't really know. Anyways. <laughs> this, okay. Pause. Listen, um, I am drunk. Listen, I'm fucked up. <laughs> allegedly, of course. Allegedly. Um, allegedly. Not allegedly. Well, <laughs> I mean, I think I think what I kind of wanted to, to say about landlords, um, you know, in a, in a biological context, um, I am a biology major from undergrad. Um, we learn about... It, it is a little bit of a flex. Um, you know, like I kind of said, I, my brain is bigger than, than uh, most animals. So we, we, 
we learn about these kind of three basic animal partnerships between species. You know, this there's there's mutualism, um, which is kind of this relationship where both parties benefit in their interaction with each other. Right? There's there's no kind of like exploitation or coerce uh, coercive nature to this relationship. Kind of a plus plus. And as a as a fellow bio major, if I kind of take a stab, is is parasitism the, the it's next coming up? The, okay, it's well, coming up. Yeah, okay. it's coming up. Ding 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 ding. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, we'll see in just just a moment. Um, we have mutualism. We have commensalism, which um, you know, is a relationship where one party benefits um, in their interaction, where the other is kind of you know just kind of hanging out, neither really har- harmed or helped, kind of a plus neutral relationship. And then, you know, when we're talking about a landlord, I would call this relationship uh, ding 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 uh, parasitism, where where you have one party benefiting at the other's expense while the other is harmed, kind of a plus minus. Now, you can argue that this landlord-tenant relationship could be considered mutualist, right? You know, the landlord's getting rent, which is a plus, while the tenant gets a place to live, which is another plus. But the way, you know, the way you think about it this way, it kind of fails to address a simple question, right? Like, kind of what we were sort of hitting on. Um, there's there's kind of this question you have to ask yourself, um, what, how does the landlord justify their right to exist in this interaction at all? You know, d- does this does this positive piece that the tenant gets does it come at the price of an inherently exploitative or coercive setup? You know, and like in other words, is this relationship between the landlord and the tenant natural, or is it constructed? And I think that's a question you can ask about a lot of relationships. Um, in the capitalist mode of production, even if you're talking about kind of work, uh, is the employer-employee relationship, is that natural or is that constructed? It's the landlords and tenants. Is that natural or constructed? You know, why does a landlord have to exist in the first place? What gives them the right to own land if they simultaneously create no value with that land and charge others for its use? You know, again, did they build the land? No. Did they build the actual building? Maybe. I mean, but usually the answer is no. Oh, like, did they make improvements and repairs? You know, maybe, again, but they probably paid someone else to do it, like a contractor, you know, which means the value of those improvements was created by the contractor and not the landlord. And and the only... Will you shut your baby up? I'm, I'm kind of in the middle of something here. No. Okay. <laughs> um, y- and, you know, the, these uh, these contractors create the value. And, and landlords only make improvements, you know, maybe you guys feel differently. They only tend to make improvements when they can be bothered to do so or, like, if it's going to benefit them in some way, like if we're talking about things like flipping a house, for example. Um, and, and the question becomes kind of like what Don was saying. Couldn't the tenants just do this themselves? You know, what special magic does a landlord possess besides, again, owning a parcel of land and the column of air that sits above it. The, the logic by which the landlord-tenant relationship is considered mutualist completely ignores that imbalance of power between the two parties. It's innately exploitative due to the social relation attached to it, which is kind of what I was talking about in the beginning, owner and non-owner. The tenant might benefit by having a home, that's true, but only while simultaneously being exploited by, you know, number one, paying rent, number two, being 
totally powerless to the rules of occupancy, which are created by the landlord, and three, not being able to fully determine the conditions of their own living space, which is really important for people to have self-determination in general and autonomy, but especially where they go to, you know, create their social reproduction. And meanwhile, the landlord benefits thrice over, meaning they get rent while retaining ownership of the land and determining the rules and conditions of occupancy. That's money and power. And the very fact that a landlord owns and controls this property presupposes a negative, which is placed on those without property of their own. And it disallows people from being truly autonomous in their homes, like I was saying. So if we accept this fact, then the only means by which a landlord is able to justify their existence and the right to land ownership is through the political enforcement of some stated law that allows them to continue this ownership and social relation in the first place. And that law is realized in sort of those ideal, uh, uh, like liberal ideals of the 17th and 18th century. People like Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, again, Adam Smith, this idea of private property, which th this is, you know, I, I hate to be the one to tell you guys this again, believe it or not, capitalism is, is not human nature. It's only existed for like 300 years or so in the West at least. I mean, there's a lot of propaganda out there that'll have us believe this is the way it is, this is the way it's always been. Not quite. Um, and before states began to protect and uphold private property, most land was held either as public property, like owned by some kind of state entity, or held in common or collectively, meaning jointly by non-governmental entities, like the people. So to me, I'm almost done. To me, it seems like private property, at least as enforced by some political entity like a government or a state, although it was initially this idea that rejected the complete ownership of land and resources by some like king, monarch, during the times of feudal relations, feudalism, now it's become this like distorted way for owners to justify exploitation of a non-owning class, the working class. So this like social relation is the same, if you think about it, owner and non-owner. The owners have just kind of changed their appearance um, pretty, pretty much. So for, from my standpoint, like, why couldn't you just have a situation where the tenants are, in fact, the personal property owners of that land and the apartment that they live in with the ability to hire something like a property worker to kind of help manage these issues with the property or the land, anything that, you know, any issues that they may have? and pay them on an as-needed basis rather than this monthly rent. I mean, it seems to me like both parties would benefit here, and that's a true sort of like mutualist partnership without coercion. I don't know if you guys have something to say about that, if you agree, if you disagree. Like I said, we're not all on the same page politically here, so kind of interested to hear some opinions. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's I don't, I wouldn't say I disagree. Um, of course, it would need some heavy kind of thought and refinement to make it practically work. Um, to give kind of an example for how we started this discussion, um, we were talking about kind of MBA owners and the different, you know, roles they may have with the actual quote-unquote ownership and running the team. I mentioned Steve Ballmer. Steve Ballmer, big wig at Microsoft, bought the LA Clippers a couple years ago. 
um, the just absolute gem of a man before him, Donald Sterling. Oof. Um, I'm sure a lot of you kind of, well, maybe know sort of what happened with Donald Sterling. But to give a very brief recap, Donald Sterling a couple years ago was essentially banned from the league and forced to sell the Clippers because he was caught uh, making racist comments to his mistress and that leaked out. Um, and the NBA, as we all know, is predominantly African-American, uh, did not sit well, and he got banned and had to sell the team. However, my point is, you know, Donald Sterling in 1981 purchased, at the time, the San Diego Clippers for $12.5 million. Donald Sterling... That's it? Donald, yeah. In 1981, $20 million. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's... <laughs> I mean, I guess, but still, like, so for, for a basketball team, $12 million, that seems $12 like nothing. Yeah, so what? But it gets better, so... Donald Sterling ran not only the worst NBA franchise, but potentially ran the worst sports franchise for about three decades. I mean, they were known to be the Clips. Oh, they're awful, trash. When, awful. We young, when I yeah. used to play NBA courtside on my N sixty four, I always played <laughs> the exhibition warmups against the Clippers because they were so Good bad. Man. They had Lloyd Vaught, they had Eric Pikowski. I mean, they were they were just awful. And these are names I've never heard. They of, would so. never. He would never pay the players. Pooh Richardson. Pooh Richardson. <laughs> His name Poo? was Pooh. His name was Gotta Poo. love Winnie that. the Pooh Richardson. Real name. Look it up. Yeah. So they would never pay the players, and it was because he was only there to make money. So when all this racist kind of unfortunate series of events leaked out and he had to sell the team, uh, it was in 2014, and uh, it was a big kind of you know mess with the legalities, but he essentially ended up selling it for $2 billion. Fuck out of here. $2 billion to contribute nothing. Be a racist. <laughs> be and, a racist. <laughs> and, run a team, and run a team. Into not the, one NBA Finals not, appearance. Not, not even a Finals appearance. We're not talking about a win. Not a game. Not a game. We're not talking about game. Iverson. <laughs> did they make the playoffs at least? Yeah. Not much. They did. They didn't start making it till In the 2000s, you know, once they got Blake Griffin, they traded for Chris Paul, you know, DeAndre Jordan oh, yeah. became a thing. Um, and then you look at what happened in the last five years. The Clippers have been in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. This is, I mean, post-Sterling. Post Clippers have been in the playoffs. Currently are the favorites to win the NBA championship. Um, and he's done more, him being Steve Ballmer, has done more in five years than literally what Donald Sterling did in 30 as far as running a successful franchise. But but Don Sterling made an unbelievable amount of money and contributed essentially nothing as far as sports-related gain. It's a pretty good grift, though, like overall. Yeah. You got to hand it to him yeah. in a way. Yeah. For me, though, jumping back in with what <clears throat> Four Ones was saying about, like, you know, let's get this mutual partnership. To me, when you are purchasing property, um, whether you have it inherited by land or that you have the means to do so and you're purchasing it, most people don't just purchase it just for the flex of saying, I own property. I think they're trying to make a profit off of it. Right. Therefore, when you are making a profit off of it, if you have a home, if you have an apartment, if you bought a home and now you're wanting to rent it out to somebody, with what the government does to those people that purchase the homes, um, it, it just now becomes, if you're not living there, not your primary resident. Therefore, they up the property tax. Therefore, when I'm asking, let's say, John Smith for rent and he is renting my home, I'm having to also take accountability for any damages that he may have, et cetera, and I'm going to have to make those repairs and all that. Therefore, and by the market around us, which you could 
say that was fueled by capitalism. As the market rises, my rent has to go higher. And if anything incidental happens to the home, I have to pay my my own mortgage to pay off the home if it's not already paid off for. And then also I have to pay for the property tax at the end of the year, um, home insurance, and et cetera. So I have to make first my expenses and my liabilities paid for. And then I have to move forward with hopefully making a profit at the end of it or what am I doing this for? And basically the, the whole thing is that you're doing this is to have some renter pay off your mortgage. And then once you pay off the mortgage, now you're making a net profit. But until you get to that point, there's a lot of liabilities and expenses that the real estate game pretty much puts in front of you. So to answer your question, you're saying, well, why can't we just have this tenant come in and not pay or, you know, not why pay they have to pay this and then they can hire tenants. Of their own. I think they can, but it's one way or the other. I'm saying for this package price, let's say $1,300 a month, I'll take care of everything. You just have to live here and just don't be a dipshit and, and like destroy the house. So you could just say, okay, I can take off $200 a month, but then if anything happens to the home by legal contract, if I have a smart lawyer that puts it in the contract, if you fuck up the house, you're going to pay for it out of your own pocket. So for me, it's like for this rent that I know every month I can afford, if I'm the rentee, I like to see, okay, I can afford 1300 I have my other liabilities. Some people are living paycheck to paycheck. They don't want to have to think, oh, shit, the roof is now broken. Oh, shit, my heater's broken. Now I got to put up another $1,000 or 1500 Sometimes the HVAC systems are five grand. So therefore, if I say I'm paying uh, Mr. Anderson over here um, my 1300 a month, and he's telling me, yeah, just give me a call. Now, it may take two weeks for Don. It may take one week if I'm a good you know, landowner. But in the grand scheme of things, you're paying that one bundled package to live in a nice home, hopefully, by your choice that you're choosing to rent here. But everything as far as liability and stress and inconvenience is taken care of for that $1,300. So I think we can give you the scenario where the rentee gets all this access that you're hoping for, Mr. Four Ones. But just to be objective here, they're also going to have to take on all the things that come as being a homeowner. So when and usually when people rent, it's not more so that they can't afford a home, but they probably don't want to mow the yard. They don't want to take care of the HVAC. They don't want to take care of the roof. When you purchase a home, you are all responsible for that. And I hope you have the means to correct those adjustments if or correct those mod- you know things if something wants to come up. That's my point. Now, I don't agree that you, with what you just said at least, that people who don't own homes, they don't want to own homes because they don't want to like deal with the upkeep or whatever. I, I don't, maybe like for some people that's true, but if we're looking at, you know, generational trends here. Millennials, I mean, they like to be blamed for, you know, fucking everything. Like, millennials destroyed avocados. Millennials destroyed, uh, you know, Burger King. I don't know. They, they destroy everything in their path. Um, millennials destroyed homeownership. They didn't destroy homeownership. They, they literally can't afford a down payment on a house. Millennials are living in apartments. They're renting because that's all they can afford to do. There's, there's no situation where... You know, this vast swath of, you know, this huge generation of people are at a point where they're saying, eh, I just, like, don't want to own a house now. Like, like why would their thinking be any different from Gen Xers, boomers, you know, quote, great generation people, not really. Why would their mentality be any different? Like, home ownership is something that people strive for, um, at least in the U.S., more so than other places, other countries. But, but why all of a sudden would millennials uh, say, oh, I don't want to own a home? I it's right. more so there's some kind of like economic imperative 
that they have no choice over, that they have to say, well, I don't really have a choice but to rent right now. And hopefully in the future, maybe I can buy a house, but as of now, can't do it. Not, not necessarily. I mean, what, what if, like, let's say you're a resident as a, as a medical student and you're saying, I'm going to live in Pittsburgh and I don't think I'm going to live here forever and I don't want to invest. I'm going to be moving out. So why am I going to purchase a home? And then you're going to be you're going to be upside down on your flip. When I, you, I think there are situations if you don't appreciate that... and you'll build equity in the home. Then and another thing is also if you're coming right out of school or it takes you your, your income to debt ratio is also very high if you have student loans or if you did mm-hmm. any kind of like messed up with the credit sure and then you know and, and things but i mean i will say that you know as a first time home buyer just a few years ago and i'm sure i think you as well i don't know if they offered that in your state but they give you that first time home buyer where you only have to come up with 5% down payment now 5% i know is could be still a lot, but it is a goal that you can come up to. Like as far as like if you start working, let's say, unless you're becoming a doctor, your average age, I'd say people start entering the workforce is 24. If you say for hopefully five to six years discipline and due diligent wise, I think you can get to that 5% down payment, like a 5% down payment on a $200,000 home. Someone here, math, See, tell I, me what I it don't. is. Unfortunately, exactly. I, I don't think that if you're, if I, I mean, just thinking about like my friends, people I went to high school with, people I went to college with that were not in my medical school class. They they don't have five percent for a down payment for a house. They're they're still paying off their their student loans. They're paying off medical debt. They're paying off all kinds of shit that they they need to take care of first. Maybe they're trying to get married. They're saving up for a ring. There's all these things that people have to consider first. Like owning a house is is like way down the line for a lot of people, unfortunately. Well, why is a ring just just, just for the sake of it? Why is a ring more important to people than a home that a home can appreciate in value? A ring, once you buy it, it depreciates probably by twenty, thirty percent. Hey, that's a good question. I think the you know we've already discussed the wedding industrial complex in a previous episode, so not to rehash that. I I kind of wonder about the utility of rings in the first place, but that's you know there's sort of this cultural element that this is the way people tend to think about marriage is like oh i have to buy a nice ring i have to you know kind of show show this wealth to other people show that i was able to do this for my husband or my wife or whatever unfortunately that still exists and for some people that's important for others it's not and i think something like home ownership can be pushed back whereas if you're trying to get married maybe that's something a little more urgent kind of depends on your situation of course so in other words getting married it's it's a fucking trap. Just don't do K- kind of a racket, I would yeah, say, it's, overall. It's I, I wouldn't money. recommend but, it. Yeah. But I'm going back to do the due diligence part. As far as this goes, <laughs> sorry. Don Quixote said that it's going to cost $3,000 if you if for a 5% down payment for an average size home. Is that what you just said, $3,000? Whatever. I honestly don't remember what initial number Fine, fine. $3,000. If you do the simple math, if you say at age 24, I want to buy a home, it's a goal. I want to buy a $3, home. $3,000 is 5% of a home? You're saying it, it, it could be. Uh, I'm just saying it, I'm using an arbitrary number. Three thousand dollars. I don't think. Payment. Where can you buy a, a for, home for sixty thousand dollars? No, no, no. For, I say, I'm saying. I think. First. I think he initially said five percent of a two hundred thousand dollar home, which oh, would a two, be ten okay, thousand dollars. Yeah, right. I, th- I think maybe that's so. What you said. If you if you build up to where let's say how much a down payment of ten thousand dollars, and let's say you want to do that, and let's say by the age by the by the age of thirty, so if let's say you're wanting to do. $10,000 by the age of 30 and you're 24 years old. Yeah. So it, for six years, if you're able to put back a hundred dollars a month in six years, you could reach your, your, your home buying opportunity. 
Now you're saying, okay, well, some people can't afford that. Then why are you trying to get married? Why are you trying to go buy a ring and all that stuff just so that you can achieve? I think it's all about priority. That's where I'm getting to. It's like if you're saying I want to buy a home that is like, could be an appreciating asset in a town. Now, if you're going to somewhere like rural West Virginia, rural Virginia, rural South Carolina, yeah, you're not going to appreciate. You're probably going to buy something that's stagnant. But if you you know prioritize it, put down a budget, the same thing that you're saving for that ring, the same thing that you're saving for that grand vacation. Mm-hmm. I think there's an opportunity to do that because a lot of first-time home buyer opportunities in different states say, you just need to come up with 5%. And you don't have to buy a $300,000 home. You can buy a $130,000 home condo. My perception, though, is that even $100 a month is a big ask for a lot of people. Even something... That but for seem- a person that can already afford rent, I mean, that's... What, what? Even still, maybe that's the best they can do. They're getting by paycheck to paycheck. Like, what? what is it? Like, 40% of Americans can't afford, like, a, a emergency expense of $400 or more? I mean, that's pretty telling of, like, where we're at as a society, right? Like, 500,000 people every single year go in, are, become bankrupt from medical debt. Like, there, there are people who are on the edges of precarity when it comes to their like financial situation. So even something like $100 a month, it may not seem like a lot for some people, but that's something unattainable for a lot of others. And, and this is where I've agreed with you in the past. I do agree that there is a an income level that I agree that we need to have some sort of regulated, structured thing, and it's not like a, you know an extreme by any means, but they need to have their necessities met where it's water, where it's shelter. I'm yes. talking about now we're going above that poverty level to where now you have an opportunity to make financial decisions. Mm-hmm. How many of these people can we say, do we have in that database that's saying, oh, I'm right out of school. I'm a banker. I can't afford a house because of this and that. Yeah. What are you driving? What kind of clothes are you buying? What kind of apartment are you? Are you living in uptown you know, Charlotte? Are you living in uptown Tampa Bay? Are you living in Manhattan? You know, wh- what is your what is your discipline in order to get to that level to where you can buy your own home? Because the mortgage levels are much cheaper. Your mortgage payment for a house that's two hundred thousand dollars is much cheaper than you renting from a two hundred thousand dollar home. Probably like six to eight hundred bucks on average. But you're also thinking prospectively too, and this is the last thing I kinda wanna say about Remove this. Remove under the poverty line, that's where I'm at. I'm not even talking about yeah. poverty level. I think renting, I wouldn't call it enticing, but it's the only option for a lot of people, not only because they can't afford a down payment, but also because of what you're saying earlier, like, oh, what if the fucking roof is destroyed? What if the HVAC needs replaced? What if there's a leak in the basement? Like these are expenses that, again, a lot of people, 40, probably 40 to 50% of people in the United States, this would be devastating for them. This would bankrupt them. So taking on that risk, that responsibility is not in the cards for them. It's, it's literally impossible to take on that level of risk. Like, what are you going to do? You're going to go back to the bank and ask for another loan uh, at like seven or eight percent that you're already struggling to pay back from your ridiculous student loans. Like there's only so much debt you can take on before enough is enough. The advantage of buying a home for ones is that if you are lucky enough now, and if it happens the first month you're there, you probably made a horrible investment choice that your roof fell apart the first month you're there. If you're able to survive (laughs) anywhere between two to six years after that, you're probably going to build some sort of equity. You can, if, if you have to go to desperate measures, you can take a lien off of your mortgage, and they're actually most banks because it's a lien on your mortgage will probably give you somewhere around two to three percent interest only. Not like these bank loans they're going to try to like you know scourge your blood from your from your from your head by saying hey we need fifteen percent interest. There are opportunities as long as you are financially savvy. I think that's where it comes down to like if you can do the there's education out there now. If it's only going to be oh oh me I have you know student loans get in line. But what I'm saying is 
where I'm trying to meet you at is that if you can be disciplined enough to have something as far as an asset as a home versus the, you know that brand new GT Mustang that's going to depreciate by the time you drive off the, the driveway or you're buying that ring that costs eight grand and you're probably going to get laid that night and get married, et cetera, but then it drops to about one grand if you want to resell value, unfortunately, from you know, Zales or he went to Jared's and all that stuff and other propaganda capitalistic <laughs> approach. So for me, it's like I that was a hard time for me and my wife. I'm very financially knowledgeable. And I told her, I said, I said, listen, I'm doing the research. I know every woman wants to have that ring. But if I buy a ring, it's probably going to depreciate by 40 percent if we ever needed to resell it or by, you know, you know, uh, by all means, if we don't work out, you know, the resale value on this sort it's a horrible investment on paper, but you're investing in her happiness. So if you're able to make the means happen, that's the difference between do I buy a thousand dollar ring, a five thousand dollar ring, or for some people that are very privileged and uh, and, and fortunate, a forty thousand dollar ring. That's the differences on the levels. But for my thing is that these, as far as the home ownership part, you're able to go to the homeowner, and if you are able to, you know, the, for him to be able to provide this to you, he has to take on the liability and the responsibility of all these items and then you have to come up with like i'm paying for the inconvenience or the convenience of it see i think like uh you know it's a little bit off topic but it's still on the topic in the sense that you know it it, and correct me if i'm wrong here slick uh this is something that you've probably learned either from experience or passed to you by maybe a friend that's already experienced something similar to this or you know whatever fucking thing maybe you read a book on finance I think a big issue, and especially we're all in a millennial generation here, is we're never fucking taught any of this. As far as yes. it, it, it's a huge Very thing. True. I mean, like I, I remember the year I graduated from school, and I graduated high school in 2015. It was the I was the first graduating class that was required to take an economics course, um, and, and we had. I had my teacher for it was Mr. Hunt, who Slick's probably going to laugh. It's literally a fucking joke of an educator. Not qualified. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, he could his his reading level is probably not even qualified to be in high school. Um, <laughs> you know, um, it, some strong words, but it, it, it's God bless it, you. It's it's an important class that God was taken you, as a Mr. joke. Matt. They kind of put an educator who, honestly, whatever he taught could kind of just be kind of you know shoved under the rug type of thing like it, it wasn't there wasn't a huge emphasis on something that probably could have been very helpful as a graduating senior possibly hitting the, what the job force or for me I, I went to college so I kind of got to bypass that for a certain amount of years about where I would maybe need some of this type of information on you know on what I could be doing um, I think know, that's a whole other conversation too just sorry to inter- right. interject but uh, the way that um, at least public school is sort of structured is not a lot of um, interest in preparing people for the difficulties of life, kind of like what you're saying, how to budget, how to have a bank account, how to own a home, how to handle car payments, all these things that everybody like needs to, well, you, you know, if you have a car and like all that stuff, you, you, you know, it would be helpful to know these things and to learn them in school. But unfortunately, the, the way that, you know, public school, at least where I went to public school, the way it's structured is like, you know, mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. Um, you know, the plant cell wall, plants have cell walls, uh, you know, um, whatever. Shakespeare. Um, right. I, these are the kind of things that you learn, unfortunately. Uh, and, you know, you never do Algebra 3, like, ever again in your life after you graduate from high school. Uh, these kinds of things. So I, I think that's maybe... A different conversation but I, I feel you like I, I think education has 
space in any of these things we're talking about. We could all stand to know a little bit more about the things in our lives. But 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 honestly, not not to not to hate on you, Slick, but I really think that using education as a um, as a starting point, telling people that all they need to do is like budget better or like learn how to do these things better. I, I think it's a little it's a little condescending because for a lot like I was kind of saying, for a lot of people, unfortunately, you can budget until until you're blue in the face. But if you don't have the money to budget in the first place, there's no amount of education that's going to help you out of your situation. There, there's there's nothing that's going to change that besides, you know, some kind of lucky stroke where you're able to, I don't know, go back to school. Maybe you came into money somehow. I, I don't know. Like, there's there's a lot of things, unfortunately, under capitalism that are totally out of your control. And you kind of just have to take it as it comes and deal with it as it comes. I mean, I I hear what you're saying, and I completely agree. Education is a good foundation. I don't mean by any means to be condescending, but if we go, if we go down the street, there are different areas. Let's just say, yeah. So let's just say, like, I mean, I'm just making up here. I know the Charlotte area very well. So if I'm wanting, if I have a little bit more money than, let's say, the average person, I'm going to live in Ballantyne. It's you know, the rent's higher, the amenities are better, whatever. If I am trying to, let's say, right out of school, making maybe in the mid 30s, um, I'm probably going to look maybe towards either East, West, or North Charlotte. If I'm making mid 30s, I have no business going to Ballantyne and saying, I want the finer things in life at age 25. Mm-hmm. So, therefore, what I'm s- suggesting and hoping for whoever re- you know hears this podcast, it's not me trying to be condescending, is that in the beginning, when you have no capital, when you are on a type, when you have no, not many means that can afford you in this capitalistic world. I agree. There is a capitalistic approach. We are all prisoners of that in the way, and that's what 4-1s has taught me. But you have to play the game, as we had mentioned earlier. You have to play the game, and you have to see how you can survive it and get out of the rat race of it. So my, my suggestion moving forward is that when you're in the beginning of your life, and you're making thirty to thirty-five thousand dollars in a world that probably requires you to make forty-five to fifty to be whatever. You need to put yourself in situations where you have a car that can get you from point A to point B. You're not driving that brand new Forerunner. You need to live in an apartment that doesn't cost that much as as far as rental value every month. You need to go into that lower level one room bedroom studio until you are able to get to a budget that where you can have a little bit of excess, even if it's fifty dollars a month. Put it to the side. Put it into some sort of blue chip stock. Let it grow through the years until you get to your 30s. Maybe on the way you're getting promoted. Maybe on the way you're getting more funds. There's a way for you to survive until things get easier. But to say I'm not going to try to improve or put myself in a better bubble in order to improve I think is irresponsible. Yes, there's education out there. I'm not using that as the catalyst here. But at the same time, it's like you can't just say we're in the most informational available era of our lives in, our, in this world. And you're telling me I can't find something that can get me to that point where I can improve my situation five to seven years from now? I don't know. I don't agree with that. I mean, I'm saying there is a capitalistic world around us, but we can beat it if you're disciplined enough. But if you're at age 24 and you're making $40,000 and you drive a car that takes up 70% of your income, and then, you, and then you're buying Ralph Lauren, Lacoste, you know, you're going to the gym trying to flex with, you know, what's it called? Louis Lemon, whatever, like a hundred dollar. Yeah. Hun- uh, whatever it's called. Sorry. I don't, I don't buy it. Cause I think it's a rip, but sorry, you know, sorry, Don, right. but, it, but for me, it's like a hundred dollars to go sweat. 
<laughs> one pair of pants that somebody bought me as a gift Aww. that I wear probably once a week. Oh, but no. anyway, go okay, ahead. right, right. Sorry, John. Okay, so anyway, but what I'm saying is like to go sweat and smell really bad in a hundred dollar outfit is crazy to me. But you know, for me, that's that's what I'm coming down to. Is like I I hope when you know when I listen to your podcast for ones, I hope that they're getting information from you of saying yes, this is the game that, that has been put. This is the rules. How do we help these people rise above it and try to find a maneuver rather than say let's sit in the corner cry and say can someone throw me a hundred thousand dollars. You know, that's Nobody's what saying that. Hang on a second. Where, where I disagree with what you said is um, it's a capitalist world. We all have to play the game. My, the entire point of what I'm trying to say is that, no, no, no. Like, the, the point is not to beat the game. You know, the point is to change the game. Mm-hmm. The point is to transcend the game. Because as long as we live in this mode of production where there are, you know, a couple of owners, 1% to 3% of the population, and everybody else is a non-owner of capital you're going to have exploitation. It doesn't matter how many people you try to like lift up with education or with making better consumer choices or being smarter about your money. This doesn't matter because if you have a hypothetical situation where every single person on the planet starts to like quote work harder or put more money away, it that's not going to change the situation because it's built into the game itself. It's built into capitalism itself. There have to be losers if they're going to be winners not everybody can win that's the way this game is set up it's a structural problem you can't like go with these liberal ideas of like oh let's retrain coal miners in west virginia to do uh tech work to to go do like this uh, coding kind of thing like this is going to maybe help a couple of people here and there it's going to help a couple people's situations but you can't expect this like quick fix to totally turn around a generational it's not a quick fix. poverty. It's going to take you know? 10, it, may, it could take you 5 to 15 years to get it improved because of the way that the but world is. But you're not going to lift up an entire population of non-owners to do that because, again, if they are going to be owners, there have to be non-owners. If you're an owner, there have to be non-owners to exploit. And if you're somebody who is against exploitation and against oppression and against coercion, mm-hmm then capitalism is not a game you have to win. It's a game you have to transcend. That's that's kind of my point. No, I get you. And what I'm saying is at, I, I can use the owner. Like if I can go back six years and I'm 24 years old, I can use the owner as a way of manipulating the system. Because there, there's no way to manipulate it. Hear me owner. out. Hear me out. So if I find the right owner, now I don't want to live in Ballantyne at age 24, right? I'm trying to live within my means. If I find an owner that has something that's flipping it for $600 a month in rent, I'm just giving an arbitrary number, $600 a month in rent. And I can afford 900 because of my because of my income. If I go choose the 600 rather than the one that cost 850, I am openly choosingly and responsibly yeah, choosing the $300. I agree and and then if I do that and I avoid here's the big boom uh cost, my roof just fell in, my HVAC just broke. Mm-hmm. I am not responsible for the emergency fund or my emergency fund to ever be penetrated. Therefore, once I get you, I have used the owner's uh, accountability uh, power that he that he has to uh, put on because he's owning the rental property. I use that, get through all those damages, build up my emergency fund, build up my savings, etc. Then when I'm ready to be a homeowner and you're willing to take on the responsibilities of these same things that could have happened to this renter, 
then I think you're putting yourself in a better situation. That's what I'm coming at. I'm not trying to condescend or anything, but I'm saying like you can use the capitalistic approach in your favor of saying, let me get something within my means or below my means, and then let him take on all the accountability, all the liabilities, all the depreciation factors. Then when I build up my capital, I'll leave him, and I didn't really give him that much money. I mean, I gave him above, I mean, I'm giving him more than what I would have paid with a mortgage, but I don't have the capital yet. That's where I'm at. And I'm not saying like, and, and I think, that, you know, if you can't, if you can't beat him, don't join him, but you can also win, you can still win in the grand scheme of things. I think where we're coming at is the instant gratification. I think a lot of people want to come out of school, they feel very much betrayed, and I'm one of them. I feel like, you know, I got my education, et cetera. Now I got to pay back my student loans. No one's going to come in and sprinkle fairy dust on it, make it go away. So I have to figure Bernie out. Bernie Sanders might. I, I hope. I mean, if, if he told me he has a way to do it, I'll be there on November 5th, whatever that is, next in next year. Mm-hmm. So for me anyway is that I'm trying to figure out how to get myself in a better place on the Monopoly board. That's all I'm doing. I, I don't think I can beat it, and I don't think that's the thing. But I hope they change it, and I hope there's leaders in this country in the future that make it easier from the beginning. But if you're already in the hole – you know, what are you waiting for? You might hope and wait that Bernie can make this stuff go disappear. But if not, we got to figure out as a society how to maneuver and get through this. And it's going to take you 5, 10, 15 years. But hopefully, you know, God willing, there's no tragedies. You can live the rest of your life with financial freedom and you're not succumb to the pressures of corporate America saying, hey, we got to cut, you know, what's it, Walmart and all those people. We got to cut back on you. Like, you're doing a great job, Don, but you can't wear your Louis Lemon anymore because. This you, is sad. It's <laughs> being targeted. <laughs> you can't wear it anymore because. Let the man we're, defend we're, we're, we're letting you One go. One pair of pants. <laughs> that was a gift. That pair of pants. A pair of pants could have probably paid for somebody's Ford Focus. I'm just going to put that out there. So Probably true, yeah. Yeah. So, so what I'm saying is, like, that's what I'm, that's what I want. And. I love the the side that four ones brings. I'm just saying that in the meantime, until these problems are, exp- are are taken care of, we got to spread the message of how to get around it. And there's a way to do it. You just can't at age 25 wear Ralph Lauren Lacoste that Daddy bought you in college, and now you're on a thirty-two thousand dollar budget, and you need to you need to go. I'm sorry, you have to humble yourself and go to Walmart. Yeah, I think you're hitting like one specific demographic. Yeah, and I, I agree. So I, what demographic? What, what, this is all of America. You're talking about no, like it's not. You're, you're talking. I'll and, say and this. Did, no, hang it's on. Not. And I did. And I did preface that above the above the poverty line. I did no, not. Yeah, I did not. I did what not you're say talking below. about. You're talking about a very specific class of people, which Barbara Ehrenreich calls the professional managerial class. Okay. You're talking about a very small percentage of people who are working in what they call, what she calls, um, mental work, while not owning means of production, not owning capital. Right. Yeah, but people who, but like what people does. like teachers, people like doctors, people like lawyers, people who use mental labor primarily but do not own their means of production. And these are the kinds of people that you're talking about where they make decent money, where they're able to kind of not have to deal with like the most horrific aspects of capitalism. They make enough to maybe be like a little bit comfortable. Maybe these are the people you're talking about, but you're leaving out. And I think a lot of people in the United States, because we don't have really a strong class politics in the United States, it's much more identity driven identity politics. You're leaving out, a huge percentage of people in the working class who would never dream of even the things that you're even talking about, unfortunately. People who live in neighborhoods that are totally excluded from centers of power, kind of like what I was talking about in the last episode. Mm-hmm. These are people you're, you're really leaving out, unfortunately. And, and kind of what you were saying is, 
uh, before is like in the meantime, you know, until we're able to beat it back, uh, we need to be able to live this way and like take advantage of our exploiters and our owners. But the nobody's going to do this for us. Okay. Nobody's going to fix this for us. Politicians aren't going to fix this you know problem. We have to do it ourselves. We have to you know unite somehow, coalesce. You know, you can call it revolution. Some people believe in, you know, reformist politics. But at the end of the day, it's the people that have to change this. I'm going to pause real quick because my bladder is about to fucking explode. Hmm. So I'll be right back. conversation that four want is trying to have is it, it, and i don't think anyone can really refute this is that there's just some people that get to be you know we're going to use the pool example they're behind the fucking eight ball man and, and 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 yeah you can do these maneuvers that you're talking about and you said you can take five years you can take up to 30 years you know and then i think what he's saying is that there is a whole population that would never even have to think about waiting five years to 30 years and i think even though it, it's important that I think, you know, and I, I know that referenced this multiple times is that it's, I don't want to play the capitalism game. I want to change the game. He wants to literally just flip the fucking table over and say, fuck this, you know, type of thing. And I want the monopoly and, pieces to fly everywhere. Right. And, 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 you know, and, 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 and you step on it later and you're, you're screaming, holy <laughs> fuck. <laughs> and you go to the urgent care. Not anyway, as bad and, as uh, is, but. you know, but, and I, I think it's important that, maybe in the meantime that we that we have that in the back of our minds and in the meantime we're taking you know slick's approach and saying how do we how do we fucking manage with what we have right now um right. you know and i think that's important is that being educated obviously is you know aside from just having a degree that you hold onto your wall with you know with a, uh, an expensive fucking holder um right. you know $60,000 picture frame right you know <laughs> a, a picture frame but you know more than that it's you know, how are you going to put yourself in the best situation, you know, and if you have dependents, you have a wife, you have kids, a uh, husband, whatever, um, you know, you, you just have to learn basically, you know, it's a, you know, get rich or die trying type of thing. And that's this kind of the world we live in. It's just a, a doggy doggy world. And, um, you know, and unfortunately, you know, there is people that take advantage of other people and that's, you know, a lot of people's line of work, it requires you to do those types of things or, um, if you did luck up and you have a certain asset and that's the only thing you can use to your advantage because, you know, that's, it's just, it's, it's a tough world, I think. And that's how people know, who like work for insurance companies, I think, right. feel you know, that's like kind of where I was hitting towards sales. Uh, yeah. Having know. to like deny people, uh, medication coverage and like this kind of stuff. It's a pretty depressing way to live. Yeah. Uh, I would say. And that's what I'm saying. It's a dog-eat-dog world. It's a very cliched thing to say, but it's so true. Don't get eaten. And and the best thing to do is to get eaten is, is hopefully find out ways to where you're not the – you're not – you don't have that smell that the dog wants to eat you from. Like if you go in front of a salesman and you're uneducated about what you're about to buy, he's going to kill you. 
not not literally, but figuratively. He's going to kill you in the aspect of it. Just slice He's going to finish you. Insert Mortal Kombat <laughs> drop. Finish him! So, I guess tying this discussion about landlords back into kind of the overall theme, I, I'm not sure exactly um, then, maybe I'll ask you guys, how are sports owners then different from landlords? How, how do we distinguish them? I mean, for an example, again, we were talking about, you know, Jerry Joan earlier, um, owner of the Dallas Cowboys since 1989, net worth of $8 billion something. This, this this guy, this, this fuck-ass, uh, Jerry Jones, he retains the right to ownership over this entity, Dallas Cowboys, right? And with that, he holds the power to make, you know, pretty big decisions, personally make big decisions on behalf of the organization, even if the players or the coaches don't like it. And, you know, even though he creates no value and he performs no unique labor that goes into winning the actual games, he still overwhelmingly reaps the monetary rewards of that labor, of the players and the coaches, and even, you know, talking about the stadium workers, the organizational staff, all these people that go into, you know, participating in creating that entertainment known as the Dallas Cowboys. And the only way that Jerry Joan is able to do this is by virtue of being rich enough to buy the team and own the team. And the only way he's allowed to buy the team is through enforcement of some kind of rule by the governing political body, kind of what we were talking about earlier with private property. That's a law enforced by some kind of state, right? The only way that Jerry Jones is allowed to own the Dallas Cowboys is a law that's enforced by a governing political body, and that's the NFL, right? It's kind of, you know, to me, these are parallel uh, descriptions. They're very similar. So, again, people will argue that Jerry Jones, he'll serve some kind of important function in, in manufacturing the team itself. He signs the players, he hires the staff, some sort of maintenance of the stadium, managing public relations. But but what what magic does Jerry Jones have to do this work? Like, is it only team owners that are able to do this? Like, what justifies their level of payment, of, you know, remuneration for this work? Like, does it make sense that they make millions of dollars to do this work? Like, is he himself fulfilling these tasks? No. He Is he participating in value creation at all? No, because he's delegating tasks, you know? He's hiring people to do this work to create that value through the labor, but he's not doing any of the labor himself. So this example that I, I sort of came up with, if I asked the three of you guys to build me a table and I assigned Don Quixote to, you know, you construct the legs, I got Slick over here to make the base, the actual top of the table, and I ask... Um, All about that page. I, I asked Chubbs over here, to uh, go out and get me Burger King, uh, get me some chicken fries. <laughs> You're goddamn right. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, after you guys are done, um, I sell this table, let's say for $200, and I give the three of you 15 bucks, you know, $15 an hour, for the hour that it took to build this table. Not bad, $15 an hour. Yeah. Double um, my wage. Not bad. For, so 15 for each of you, it's 45 I get to keep the 155 for myself. 
it's like peanuts, right? Compared to what I'm getting, is that justice? Like, what labor did I perform then? All I did was maybe give you the tools to do this work, like the the wood and the hammers and drills and nails and all this. You didn't need me to do that. You didn't like me specifically. You didn't need me to build the table. So, what value did I create in building this table? Couldn't the three of you have done this yourselves and split the profit? without me shaving off the top just because I own the tools. Like that's that's kind of the way I think about these things is that I'm a, maybe I was a part of this process of making something, but I personally didn't really do anything. And yet I'm the one that is <laughs> coming out on top here. So I don't necessarily agree or disagree with this because I think it's obviously complex, but this might help segue you into another talking point is I, I, I basically what some people might say is that you're correct if you make you know 155 or whatever you said it was um, you're essentially sometimes making that money because you are quote-unquote trained if there are you know difficult situations that arise later that require tough decisions tough management you in theory should be the one who has done the reading done the studying done the work to put yourself into that position to be able to deal with the inevitable difficulties that will pop up that the person me building the legs or chubbs getting the number seven of burger king number seven yeah. or slick i hope it's number seven or slick building the top of the table um yeah we we, we are we have you know I, I hate to use this phrase because i don't want it to be derogatory but we would be like the one trick ponies like we are there to make our part and that's it we clock in we clock out again i'm not saying necessarily i agree with this but my point is that would be i could imagine a point some people might raise is that what happens when the materials end up you know the supplier for the wood ends up tripling what they want to charge us which is a whole other issue but you know what happens if where we're selling our table suddenly market saturate nobody needs tables anymore you know, that's all I've done my whole life is I've built table legs. So now what? Uh, I don't have any other training to do anything else. And I, I know it's a little bit of an extreme example. And like I said, it's no, uh, it's not extreme. It, it's right. just a talking point. And, and I think that would be something that people would bring up as like, well, I make all this money because when stuff really hits the fan, I'm the only one in the table room that's qualified enough to be able to pivot strategically and quickly and effectively to better us as a group. Not just And that. I think that's only because you have this division of labor that was created um, under capitalism, right? Like you have these people who, instead of artisan or craft labor, you know, I, of course we're talking about 17, 1800s here, where people would create something from start to finish. Now you have a situation where people, like you're saying, they're assigned to one task, they do the same thing kind of over and over, and they, we call this maybe semi-skilled labor, we may even call it unskilled labor, even if, you know, whether you want to debate that or not. But again, that is a product of our current economic system, the way we make things. We've socialized production in that way where you have this guy doing this thing, this woman doing this thing, and that is how you create things a little bit quicker, more efficiently. But people, what that creates is a situation where people are alienated from their work. They don't see their product from start to finish. They All they do is the same thing. So when shit hits the fan, as you're saying, yeah, they're out of work. So isn't that a problem? Like, shouldn't we have a situation where people are able to have that training, have that education, to know what to do collectively, all of the producers together, to make these decisions democratically rather than rely on this owner to bail everybody out 
And in the end, this owner may not even have their workers' best interests at heart because what do we see in a lot of situations where shit hits the fan? Oh, sorry, everybody. Um, uh, this quarter didn't go so well, um, so we're going to fire 70% of you. Sorry, I hate to say it, but um, 70% of you have to go um, because your labor is really just not in demand right now and profits are down, so um, I hope you enjoyed the Christmas party last year, but you're, you're not going to be welcomed back. So I, I agree with that. I, I think what might be tough is getting people to trust each other enough to make those joint decisions. And again, not saying I agree or disagree with it, but if somebody went to, you know, the quote unquote, you know, tried and proven path or whatever, tried and true of, you know, I went to four years of undergrad, I went to a couple years of graduate school, I've done my time in the mailroom, worked my way up. And then all of a sudden we have this idea that you know what, let's get everyone more involved and invested as a, a joint group to better this company. It's going to take a lot of time to train the people who did not necessarily have that training to be able to effectively have good input to better the company. I, I agree that everyone wants to better the company, but I can just imagine that the person who views himself as superior, whether that's correct or not, again... Um, up, up on the hierarchy. Up on, yeah, exactly. Is, is going to have a hard time trusting everyone else to have... Th their opinion might not hold as much weight in his mind. And, and to educate people and to have everyone have the time, most importantly, to be able to effectively make group decisions is going to be tough because part of our whole discussion is, unfortunately, there's a lot of people out there who don't have time and don't have resources. So now you're going to have to allocate even more time to have them branch out from all I do is build wooden legs all day to understanding the history of the materials, the history of the marketing, the history of the production, the history of employing people, the history of recruiting, the history of all that, and, and being able to apply it. And so I agree it would be great, but I think that would be a hurdle is that getting people to have the time to have the ability to trust each other to make those decisions effective and proper for the group. It would take a huge culture shift, totally. And I, I think that, uh, oh, we have a visitor here. What, do you have something to say? Are we going to eat soon? Yeah, he said fine. Uh, here, I'll just let me finish up mine and we'll wrap up for and then we can come back. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Just before I lose my thought. So this is a uh, slick here. So uh, for, so for me, uh I, l I love the points that both of you brought up. I guess I'll wrap this up because I think we have to have an intermission, but basically just going from the basics, and I love the example of the table. So my my just the f the first thing to, the first thing to answer is the reason why you're getting 155 four ones on this deal is because in the event that don messes up the part of the leg that it keeps it stable before we send it to manufacturing and let's say he messes up 100 tables because of this mistake and now you're charging $200 a table you times that by 100 you're at $20,000 can Don pay for that liability that he cost the company to make twenty to make a, a thousand wrong tables. You're getting one fifty five a to make sure you're getting paid for the sacrifice that you're doing and the liability that you're taking on, but also to make sure that if something happened with that liability that you're able to pay it off. So if you send this design, and then you also are we're, we're trusting you that you have some sort of intellect or you have some other specialist that's not a leg developer that Don is doing that he is a quality control. Uh, guy that is kind of perceiving the table 
Therefore, whenever you're sending it to the manufacturing, then they're selling it over at Ashley Furniture. You're not selling it to where people are like, wait, four ones furniture just gave us a table that's not able to be stable. Like it's rocking left and right. How do I get my money back? Now you're getting sent back. Now you're getting it sent back to the manufacturer. You've already paid the manufacturing and the warehouse and all that stuff for that thousand tables that Don unfortunately messed up on on one thing. Fucking Don. Now he can't buy yeah, that Louis my, Lemon pants. My Lulu Lemon pants were too tight. Right. Yeah. The, right. Yeah. He he cut off his circulation. Well, he, let me let me tell that, you that, that's where I'm coming at. Let and me then, tell you this though. I mean, you talk a lot about, and we've talked about this before. You talk about accountability, but you also talk about risk. Risk being taken on by the capitalist, by the owner of whatever this um, you know company or corporation is. Do workers not take on risk? Do they no. not? No. No? no. So workers, when they go work for a company, not financial they, risk. Are they? Are they not taking on really? No. So they're not taking on the risk of being fired at any moment. They could. They're be not risk. taking on yes. the risk of uh, the the company moving. Overseas, they're not taking you. on the risk. But what, there is but, risk but, but that's Pat, involved in any worker that works for any company. I think it's wrong to say that only owners take on financial risk because workers are reliant on these owners who take on the risk. And if they make bad decisions, then the workers also I agree. are are hurt by this. I agree with you. So we can't use this as a crutch for owners to say, "Oh, well, I'm taking on all the risk. It's my money." Like it does. Well, first of all, it doesn't have to be that way. Second, they're not taking on all the risk. A lot, all of the workers there, by virtue of being parasitically <laughs> tied to this owner, they are taking on risk as well because any wrong step that the company makes, all these people could lose their job. And if their livelihood is relying on this work, that's a big risk to take on, that they chose to work at this place instead of another place. I mean, maybe that's the only place they well, could be hired, but that is a risk they take on at the end of the day. Let's go to the corporate. Let's go to the cor- Let's be a fly on the wall. You sit down with Don because he just cost you twenty thousand dollars and a thousand wrong tables being manufactured. You're telling Don, sorry, Don, you you made this mistake on the on the legs. We had a cost. I'm going to have to let you go. Yes, this is a this is detrimental to him in his personal life. But you're not asking him for that twenty thousand dollars in recuperation. You're just letting him go. Guess who still has to come up with the twenty thousand dollars? You do. No, now, not really, now, because now, you probably have insurance now, on it. What, what, yeah, who's paying for the premium every month? You or Don? Well, the idea is that all you're doing is paying the premium. You're not actually paying to replace all those tables okay, but, or whatever. But how much, but how much is the premium? For, insured. For, for, how, yeah, but it depends on the amount that you're taking out. Is it a $500,000 I mean, uh, we're insurance? getting into the weeds here. We're no, getting no, 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 but what, I'm, I'm detailed, coming back to you saying, why Why do you deserve the 155 I'm telling you why. you got to pay for the premium the insurance. you got to pay for the quality control. you got to pay me. you got to pay Chubbs. But, I mean, that's but, but why does the owner have to do that? Why can't you have a situation where the Three of you uh-huh. are the joint owners. Yeah, you cut me out of this no, situation. Just, that, that's, that's where you, you have a, startup a and now I'm you. No, that's not a startup. Yeah. That's a cooperative. We, we, we all leave you. We started a startup. Uh, now we're all co owners. A, a, star, a startup is something a little different than that. I, you're, you're I would, saying, I would call why that. Why don't we leave you? You're saying if me and right. me, Don so, and Chubbs leave you, we start our own startup. Now we're now we're you. That's a cooperative. And now we're hiring where other the three, where the three of you are part owners of that entity of that whatever that company mm-hmm. you don't need one owner to tell everybody what to do the three of you are owners the three of you democratically decide what you want to do with that money do you want to pay yourselves say you still sell that table for 200 do you want to pay yourselves each uh you know cut it into thirds do you want to save some of that money and invest in maybe hiring somebody else, growing the business? Mm-hmm. Do you want to use that money for something else? Like that's a decision that you could make in a cooperatively run company. Not, you know, you're just relying on me, the owner, to tell you guys what we're going to be doing. See, uh, so I, I think the big point here.
it's something I've kind of picked up on is that I think a, a majority of workers that work these types of jobs they don't want that responsibility yeah. I, even I, if it I means see that. Ding, 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 that what do we bigger, have for him johnny it, it, and i'm not trying to mean that in a derogatory way i think it's a sense of preference and personality i, I totally um, agree. a lot of people aren't leaders they're followers um <laughs> and you know and i don't mean that you're a follower means you're a shithead no not really i don't want to lead i don't want to have to make these decisions i don't want the bearing of 50 or 100 employees bearing on what I have to do. Some people do thrive in those situations, some don't. Um, and I think... I think giving people the choice if is If there's important. a difference in making... So if I'm making $15, um, just taking your lunch order from Burger King and, and Don's making $15 doing the legs and Slick, whatever he his job is in, in fixing this table. Um, now, if all three of us cooperatively wanted to make this table and sell it and we would make $30 per table... I think there is a majority of people that would say, fuck that. I don't want to make these decisions. I don't want to have to worry about outsourcing. I will take my $15 clock out and I get to go see my wife and kids when I get home. Totally. Whereas you, you're taking on a big financial gain. You have to pay if you're offering us health insurance, if you're offering insurance on the factory, if you're doing this and that, you have to outsource. You got to communicate with people outside in the industry where you're going to say that's a lot of fucking headache. $150 is is where the money is being quote unquote earned um, even though that you're not actually getting your you know you're not putting the elbow grease behind making, fixing the tables that's where I would think that would I'll go. just put a pin in this by saying totally agree there are people who would choose to work for a wage or choose to work for a salary if they don't want to take on the responsibility of ownership there are people in those situations maybe you just came out of college you don't you're not sure if you want to work for this company long term you just want to make a little bit, bit of money in the interim save up a little bit, you don't have a lot of other expenses, maybe that's your situation. But I think what's important is that you give people that choice. Hey, um, do you want to buy into this company where you you get a vote on the board, you get to make some of these decisions with us? No, you don't want to take on that responsibility? Okay, well, we'll pay you a wage. You're not going to have any say in what we do, how we produce, where we produce, what we produce. You're not going to have any say in that. And as long as you're okay with that and just being recuperated with a wage... We're fine with that. You can work for us, but just know that you have the choice, that you're, you're able to decide. That's not what we have today. That's, that's the problem. Okay, so to round this one out, um, kind of finish this out, I just want to get back to the the actual topic at hand here, which is about ownership in sports. Um, you know, with some exceptions, kind of like what we were talking about earlier, I think I think Slick was talking about this earlier, a lot of, a lot of sports owners don't really care about winning that much. Um, and he brought up a great example uh, in the Wilpon family who owned the New York Mets, which happened to be our favorite team in baseball. Um, you know, similar to a lot of other owners, they just don't put a lot of value in winning championships. You know, if you're still turning a profit from marketing and advertising or all you're interested at that time is just growing the value of the team without really winning, just by virtue of market dominance, you know, when you talk about places like New York and Los Angeles, Chicago, you know, they're fine with that. Even if they're not winning, they're still growing the value. They're, they're okay with that. And I think a lot of teams, in my conception at least, it seems like a lot of teams operate that way. And I, I think that's bad for the sport, honestly. I think it holds it back a little bit. 
And and I think a good example of why this is could be detrimental to places and cities. I mean, look at all the teams that have been threatening to move over the last decade. It's a way that you know ownership puts pressure on the public sector when they want things done, like when you want, for example, a new stadium to be built. The L.A. Rams is a pretty good example of that. When you have a situation where they're pretty much holding the the public in a headlock saying, hey, we want government subsidies to build this stadium. We want it to come out of taxpayer money, not our own money. And if you don't do that, we're just going to leave. And I, I, I don't see that as... I don't see that as a good way of installing, you know, camaraderie and uh, making the fans uh, part of the team. It becomes, you know, the owners are doing it their way and everybody else just has to kind of deal with it. And the reason this is bullshit, (laughs) because a lot of the money that these teams generate, you know, like we've been saying, it's from the players' labor uh, that generate the value of the team, the entertainment, but that money doesn't go back into the city that these fans that pay money to go to the stadium to watch this, right? They're the ones that kind of, you know, they pay the money and they reproduce and consume this entertainment. This money goes to the owners. So, like, yeah, they do things for the city. They invest in, like, the local economy. They you know, bring in restaurants and bars and nightclubs and all all the rest. But these aren't things that everybody in the city can access, uh, first of all. And second, there are problems in each city that you can use that money to address. You know, say, for example, let's talk about Golden State Warriors, San Francisco. You have a homelessness crisis. Think of all the money that that team is generating that's going to the owner that you could be putting back into solving this homelessness crisis. Think about putting money back into the city to support addiction services. Think of that money going into developing public transportation or investing in public schools. Like, there are a lot of ways that the fans who you know primarily live in these cities, they can contribute to this entertainment milieu, but you know they want to see that money go back into their own communities, not in the pocket of some some rich dude that they don't even really see ever. They just know their name for a lot of teams. So. In a way, like, you could have a situation where sports could be considered, like, a voluntary public tax, you know, where the people decide, like, yeah, I go to the game, I, I see the game, I watch, uh, I watch the team, and I want to see that money come back and benefit me somehow, because that's possible. We just don't really set it up that way. So I guess this leads us to the question, then, what should we replace owners with? Or should we replace them at all? I mean, just just think about what would happen if owners didn't exist. The sport would still function pretty seamlessly. Like, again, owners may work. They don't really produce value. And without the players doing the games, making the entertainment, the games wouldn't get played. And if the games don't get played, well, there's a bunch of people standing around in, in, in a costume with a number on the back and not a lot of entertainment in that. So if I had to set up sports the way I wanted to, I think teams should be cooperatively owned by the players who create the value and the cities who can manage the functions of you know, what to do with this income that the players and the fans generate. The decisions get made by the people who are 
you know, most invested in the success of the team, the players themselves who are now part owners, and the city they represent. And the city they represent represents all of all the fans who live there. If the players own shares and therefore stake in this company, this team that they're playing for, I think it would it seems more likely to me at least that there would be more interest in growing with that team and not leaving that city. There's no way to completely curb people from wanting to, you know, go to the best cities, quote unquote, again, like New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, like these big cities, these big market cities with all of the amenities that you want. But I think if you're going to introduce ownership, it'd be one way at least, I think, to entice uh, these like mid-level players to stay with an organization for a longer time. Because I think ownership changes sort of how you think about your place on the team. Because, you know, if you're actually invested in the organization's success, not just from a salary standpoint, but in the context of, you know, I'm actually a part owner of this entity. You know, I I think you're more likely to, to understand you're partly responsible for this organization's continued existence and success. And you'll be willing to, like, ride or die for it rather than just like, okay, I got my paycheck, move on. You know, move on. It's not really a second thought. If it's not working for you anymore, you just leave. And I think a, an easy example of how this would, would look or work, I mean, look at the Green Bay Packers. They've been publicly owned. They're a nonprofit organization since 1923. The Packers have a president, you know, somebody that, like, oversees operations and deals with that kind of stuff, but not an owner. The fans historically have been able to buy shares in the team, and, you know, it's their, their investment doesn't return dividends. Like, fine, I, I'll, ad, I'll admit that. It's really symbolic in nature. But it does, in a way, allow fans to have a more tangible connection to the team. And they even have, like in some situations, uh, like minimal voting rights uh, to make some kind of decisions. And the profits that the team makes either goes back to the community or to charity. And since there's no owner there's much less risk of the team relocating, um, trying to pursue profit, right, and being prone to, like, market forces, pretty much. And this happened in the 40s and 50s, I think. The the team, uh, they were threatening to leave, and the fans basically, <laughs> like, fucking rose up. Um, so I think that's a good example of how it could go. The team still plays. The team still wins. I mean, Green Bay, right? <laughs> Green Bay's a pretty damn good team. They've at least in my lifetime over the past decade or so. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think ownership really has anything to do with winning uh, if you have the right pieces in place to construct the team. Yeah, I think uh, just kind of commenting on that for once, uh, which I think was very um, well represented as far as how ownership, I think, really tends to... Honestly, it ruins sports. Uh, it ruins your team's chances of winning a lot of times. And I know that all of us have kind of, you know, and including your dad, we've all kind of just sat in and we've complained and complained about how we wish that the Mets would just get somehow forced the Wilpons to, to get them you know, out. Yeah. I mean, literally, because it, the Wilpons, I mean, it, it's report after report that, you know, they cash in on players that. They make certain moves to to save money so they don't have to pay as much luxury tax at the end of the season. These are players that could help us, you know, potentially go into a playoff run. Um, players that make a lot of money um, that get hurt and they cash in on insurance um, on their contracts. And it's, and it's been known that the Wilpons don't reinvest that back into baseball operations, which no. 
you would assume you lose the best player on your team, you're going to want to try to replace him. It's going to be hard to replace him, you know, one-to-one, but at least get something. And that ends up being a bonus for their timeshare in Florida or wherever the hell they go. Um, you know, and it's frustrating, you know, and they're still making a profit at the end of the season. I know you've made this, you've harped on this, um, on this point quite a bit is at the end of the day, as long as they're making money, they don't really care if the team wins or not because dumbasses like us are still going to pay our harder working money to watch the Mets. Yeah, because we, we love this shit, you know? I mean, look yeah, at Jeffrey Loria. That's another example. This, uh, this guy, he used to own the Marlins. What, what was it like the early 2000s, I think? What, what his scheme basically was to build up a team from scratch, get all of these like excellent prospects, build them up, get close to a championship if they can, just bring fans into the stadium, right? Get people watching, get people invested. The Marlins, they won the World Series in 03, right? With like Dontrell Willis and uh, who's that other? Yeah, so basically what they did was in, they became an expansion team and they built up, I think, for a year or two. It was really quick. I yeah. mean, he was, they had pretty good scouting, and they won it in 97 with our old, right, our, yeah. old, our old phenom uh, p- pitching guy, Al Leiter. He was their <laughs> ace, and he won, it, he won it in R&D. 97. Then he immediately they tore it down um, and tried to do a fire sale. And what they, would, what they did was try to get as much prospects as possible so they don't pay these guys i mean is anyone at home knows the arbitration process is a huge ordeal and that's what i wanted to kind of jump in on is that these owners have a lot of outs in mlb i think mlb is the one that needs the most modification and you know i'm the guy for the past hour is always saying like listen we can't flip it over completely but i would love a modification because we're giving these owners like the will ponds like jeff lowry and all them, they we're giving them outs because what they can do is build up our hope, build up that you know things are going good. You want to go invest season tickets. I mean, season tickets isn't cheap in New York, even in Miami. A couple Atlanta, ten thousand dollars more. Right? Than, I mean, yeah. I mean, and, and you're saying we wanted to do season tickets, and that's just like if maybe buying for two. Now, what if you got two kids? What if exactly. you got you know you want to take your brother and sister? What if you want? So for me, they have a lot of outs, and basically, in the most simple way I can say to people at home is how garbage this is. Is that I can build up your hope for like a couple years because the prospects that we drafted are really good and you start investing your time, which I mean, think about it. Look how much time people are. You're going to the stadium and you got to be there at seven o'clock for the first pitch. You're going there on weekdays. You're going there on the weekends. You're you're leaving your house at like 5 p.m. Right. And not just that. You're dropping hundreds of dollars. I mean, really nine dollars for fucking stadium hot dog. Yeah. yeah. It's really and thirteen dollars for one beer. You know, like it's ridiculous. So anyway, so you get there. And then all of a sudden they have an out because they say, well, crap, we got to pay now. Like for us, we got to pay now, you know, Noah Syndergaard. He's going to demand a lot on the market. We got to pay now Zach Wheeler. He's going to demand a lot on the market. We got to start paying these guys because they lose control of these guys. In the MLB, when you come in, you have to uh, have a significant, you have to have A, be brought up to the 40-man roster. That starts your clock. Until they start that clock, they have control of you for arbitration. Absolutely. So that, that happened to Pete Alonzo almost. That happened to Chris Bryant in Chicago. What they did was he was really good. All the fans wanted this guy up above. I mean, his his win above le- replacement value was like three or four points over the guy that they had, but they wanted to not bring him up to start the quote-unquote clock because they want to have him for as much control as possible and here's the crummy part they let them sit there and we they pay them arbitration money where, where you have a mediator and you negotiate what really your value is what your pros and cons are for like let's say six years then guess what 
Chris Bryant now is about to turn 30 years old or 29 years old. They are sitting him down and he's saying, yeah, I want now like a four or five year deal. I want my security. I want to make my money. Well, the analytics show that once you hit over 30 years old, you're not going to be as good. Therefore, we're probably just going to let you go. Yeah. And then and then you guess, served your purpose. And guess what we now guess what the Cubs and Mets do in those situations? They say, Hey Chris, hey, hey, you know, Noah Syndergaard, we're gonna let you go because now you're getting close to thirty. The analytics don't prove that you're worth the money. We've paid you peanuts on the dollar. You know, and I say peanuts on the dollar, I know people who's like they're making millions of dollars. I get it. I'm talking in the relevance of MLB baseball. Like you got people making thirty five million a year. They're paying these guys like under ten and they're like really good. But also consider the amount of value that they bring to the team, right? It's like jersey none, sales. None of these jersey sales, right, none of these you yeah. wouldn't put people in the stadiums no, without S- these S N Y, Fox Sports South, Fox Sports, you know, all these different regions, they're paying tons of money because we want to see Pete Alonso. We want to see Yeah, we want to see the players. Bryant, we, I don't Mike care Trout, about the owner. Right. We want to see the players and like Bryce I like Harper. what you said you've been saying is the word control right. that is really what's what's salient what's important here is is it's not just about how much are we paying these players like how much autonomy we're we giving them it, it's control it really is because the the entire arbitration process is look you think you're worth this amount of money we think you're worth this amount of money and you have some arbiter in the middle who's saying mm, all right well we'll figure out something in the middle and usually the player loses out yeah usually yeah you know, and also kind of touching as far as control goes, and uh, you know, I know four wands is one of your favorite words, but I think there's a lot of propaganda that kind of starts to spur through. It is in, my favorite word in the news. Uh, so, you know, me and me and Slick, we follow Mets blog, um, and the latest Mets transaction was Mets what Toronto. was what manager they were going to get, and Joe Girardi was the big name on the market that all Mets fans wanted. He was a New York guy, proven to win. Um, you know, even Vegas had us at the highest odds to sign Girardi. Girardi made it known in, in many public appearances that he wanted to be with the Mets. There was really just a matter of time. Give me the contract and the money that everyone knows he's worth. Right. And let's make it happen type of thing. And about two weeks prior to Girardi not signing with the Mets, because he wasn't offered um, for various reasons, but you start seeing all these reports, these articles floating through the Mets database about how Beltron's a better candidate and that he's getting all these endorsements and Girardi's this asshole that no one likes. And I remember I remember looking over at Slick and I said, the writing's on the wall. The Mets are yeah. slowly putting out exactly. these articles saying, introducing us, getting us on board with Beltron coming along. You know, Noam Chomsky would call this manufacturing consent. Yeah. Like getting the fans to understand and be okay with what the organization And I wants. was a sucker for that. I mean, I told Chubbs, I said, you called it. And I told him, I said, but I said, in the meantime, like I'm a veteran Mets fan. Like I've had a lot of heartaches, palpitations, tears, oh, and no. I still did not want to accept it that Joe Girardi, the best candidate by far on the market with experience, with winning, like proven track record. And by all means, I hope and wish Carlos Beltran does really well for us because I want us to win. But we, in the end, gave a guy that has no MLB management experience. He's he's a Hall of Fame player. We gave him, because it's a cheap contract, cheaper contract, Girardi's going to demand at least two to three. And control. And And control, yeah. I mean, they're going to tell him, like, if Beltran ever, like, like, you know, puts his fist up and says, no, I don't want to do it that way, they're going to, like, what – you know, they're, they're just going to say, well, what merit are you standing yeah. on? So Girardi's like, I want a World Series. What leverage do you have? What yeah. leverage do you want? So you'll be my puppet and you'll like it. So, And I, I think that's kind of another thing, since we're harping on the term control here, is Girardi's not going to be anyone's bitch. And I think he made Absolutely. that known in the negotiation saying, you know, and, and I was I was telling I was telling Slick, I said, I don't really care. I don't want upper management. I don't want Brody Van Wagenen, who is a fucking sports agent, making all the calls for the Mets. What what experience does he have doing that? He doesn't. I thought 
as a Mets fan that they brought a sports agent, someone that's going to be able to set the table and fucking get you to sign with us. Big free agents. We want the big manager. We wanted Joe Girardi. I don't think Sandy Alderson gets Joe Girardi to sign, but I'm hoping that a guy like Brody Van Wagenen, someone that's coveted on sales and trying to make a good pitch, saying, why should you be with our team? And hopefully the Will Ponds will just focus on getting... I don't want the Will Ponds making decisions. If they're cool with making a check, that's cool. But whenever they start manipulating the decisions and basically whatever is going to cost the least and be able to have the biggest margin of profit, you know, that's how they basically make most of their decisions. And I think that's the reason why they went with Beltron was knowing that Girardi was probably not going to listen to all the decisions they they wanted to make. And Beltron, for in turn for his first managerial experience and getting his feet wet in the industry is going to be like, okay, we can do this. That's like the scheme of any, like a lot of companies, right? Where you have this hierarchy of like whoever is at the top, the owner, maybe they're the CEO, maybe they're the president. Then you have like the administrators under them who are like actually making the decisions. Then you have like middle management under them, right? These are the people who you hire to basically manage the workers manage any like dissent or in any issues at the bottom like to me sports ownership and hierarchy is the same way mm-hmm. like you're saying owners they hire people to hire people to hire people yep. you know and you like why why do you have this like chain of command why don't you just simplify this shit because that's a lot of money being wasted going into i don't know like organizational uh posts that don't need to be existing like they they don't really serve a lot of purpose a lot of times other than to just like give people power and make them money and it's a horrible political game too i'll, I'll add this so just another example because i'm i'm really close to home on it with the mets but so will ponds are the owners brody van wagenen is the general manager and then let's last year's coach was mickey calloway what they do and a lot of teams do this but i'm using this as an example to simplify it for the listeners so if Fred Wilpon doesn't want to spend money, he spends enough money to like, you know, show face. But if they don't win or they don't get to the results that the fans are demanding, what they do is because and Mickey has no say over the roster. He has no, he doesn't even really have say of like what moves to do pregame. What they do then is at the end of the season or at the end of two years, they say, we're going to let Mickey Calloway go. So we go in a different direction. What did he do? Yeah. You know, you know, like, you know, I know he has in-game management flaws and I know that, but like he didn't put the roster together. He didn't, he didn't go out. I mean, he was told like in this situation, you put Edwin Diaz, who was like a new acquisition for us. And he was a closer. He led to maybe 13 of those 26 blown saves. Yeah. You, There's it, only so much in-game management. You can right. Do right. I mean, I mean uh, what did really Mickey do to where it's like, you have to get fired. And he only made, I, mean, I say this very humbly. He only made $800,000 as a manager. And he literally had to face the interviews every day. He had to be the, the 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 clown face on New York Post and all that stuff. Seriously, yeah. and and they call him Mickey Mouse and blah blah blah. He's got to take the hits for an eight hundred thousand dollars. There's a lot of people that really can just hide behind their computers and work as bankers and whatever. They don't have to face any kind of you know nope. uh, criticism or media you know outrage and all this stuff. And they're making way more money than he does. And um, what I'm saying is like, and he's a scapegoat. So we don't guess what? Why do why can't we fire you, Fred? You know, why can't we say like, hey, man, you gave, you know, you did this. You've now you, literally since you've been the owner, I think it was 2004 when he came in. You've never won a World Series. You've been to one World Series. Why can't we fire you? Why is it always Mickey? Why is it Terry Collins? Why is it now Carlos Willie Beltran? Randolph, you know? Yeah. Why, why is it their fault? Like, yes, you're hiring middle management. That's literally saying that we work should have fired their middle managers 
middle management managers because of what the owner did. Yeah. And, and this because is the decisions that they're think making. Think about it in real life. So, like, that's what I'm saying. And then Brody Van Wagen is the puppet to the Will Ponds. And Brody is now trying to say, hey, we're doing this. We're doing that. We're, we're dedicated to win. Come and get us. Blah, blah, blah. Get us all pumped up. And then, like, if the Mets start losing, see a Mickey, see a pitching coach, see you this, see you that. Everybody we're but trade the, the players, person. Trade the players because, you know what, you're, mm-hmm. you cost too much money, so we're going to now get cheaper players, but we're going to ask Mickey Calloway or Carlos Beltran to win with not the best product on the, on the field. And that's what's the annoying part. Where is your accountability? I'm a man of accountability. Where is your accountability? And you should not be making that much money. And if you want to make that much money, win a damn World Series. And that's all it is. And if you can't win the World Series, you don't deserve to get made. You don't deserve to make this money every time. And I just want to be incentivized. And I think that should go trickle down all the way down to the bottom. I think we'll uh, we'll wrap up there. Uh, this is a bit of a long one, uh, but I think there's a lot of interesting information in here for people who, again, kind of like I was saying in the beginning. Things that you may not perceive as political, things you may not think about as having like anything to do with the world outside of sports or entertainment, like everything that we consume has some kind of political bend. And and if you think about the world and, and that like through that lens, I think you'll start to understand the world a lot better. Beyond understanding the history of things, beyond understanding, you know, the power relations between things, just like seeing the world through that lens makes the world make a lot more sense. So I think we'll wrap up there. Um, forgot to mention, we, we lost <laughs> we lost a comrade along the way, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, Don had to had to bounce out, but uh, thank you guys for, for coming on. He had to buy on. pants at uh, Lululemon. <laughs> Lululemon. You know, yeah, so he's up to two pairs, I think. Now. Yeah. yeah, he's up to two pairs. I think he got his commission check for this podcast, and he yeah. went and spent it right away. He's, he's sponsored now, I believe. Yeah, um, he's which sponsored is great. Lululemon. He's a good guy. Him. He just, uh, you know, had other priorities to go buy new pants today. So. Yeah, hate to yeah. see it, but yeah. um, thank you guys for coming on. I'm sure this will not be the last time we have you on the on the Wellness Center. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah, I think the fans will probably uproar if we don't come back. So we'll, we'll be back. Certainly, true. Um, we'd really like for the fans to um, we'd really like for the fans to put in the feedback um, when they rate this episode, so that we have leverage and coming back to the episode so i mean o- only give us, it, give only us your feedback. good reviews on, yeah yeah i mean no negative comments welcome yeah here. and be specific yeah. if you hated slick which is me let me know i can yeah. improve if you think chubbs was horrible you know let him know but but if you think we chubbs want feedback great, I, we definitely know. want to be part of the show in the future just logistics don't work out right now but we'd love to come back and touch on different bases not just sports yeah uh definitely wish to do that in the future so. yeah, and if you have thoughts about being a Mets fan don't do it yeah, yeah don't, don't, curse. don't make that mistake oh, we're, we're all yeah it's a curse that we can't room, get rid of but yeah. yeah um well we'll see you all next time thank you yep, thanks thank for you. having us four ones thank you for one my pleasure speed. my absolute fucking pleasure <laughs> thank you boys right, take care